The talk you're about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is Tuesday, 16th of June, 2020, and the um, title of, of today's talk is uh, Black Lives Matter. I'm going to start off with a verse from the Mumonkan, which is number 35, Say and Her Soul Separate. Um, and the verse goes like this. The moon among the clouds is ever the same, different from each other, the mountain and the valley. How wonderful, how blessed. Is this one? Is this two? There's a little, little verse about, about sameness and difference. And we'll, we'll come back to it. Um, Guess what? What sparked my wanting to talk on this topic was a news item that I heard of a, um, a student having put up a poster for the Black Lives Matter march that was yesterday, no, day before yesterday, and put these posters up at school, and then a teacher came along, ripped them down, threw them on the ground, stamped on them and has apparently said that at that point or later, all lives matter. Well, this comment was made anyway. And this all lives matter also appeared on a church billboard in Wellington. It was later taken down. Uh, and the point is that, of course, all lives matter. Uh, the statement, black lives matter, arises out of that truth of all lives mattering. And it, but it arises out of, um, at least in the States, nearly 400 years, maybe 370 or 380 years of that truth having been ignored. Slavery, segregation, lynchings, uh, mass incarceration, uh, police brutality, um, redlining, which is um, sort of collusion with real estate agents and banks to stop black people living in certain areas, uh, underfunded education, the list goes on and on. These are all examples of the disregarding and undervaluing and outright uh, destruction of black lives. So the situation in the US is particularly extreme and, and deeply ingrained. Um, in some ways, some ways um, for for a lot of white people, black lives aren't even visible. Um, 
I was um, visiting and staying in Rochester for years before I went to the black neighborhoods that exist on one side of the city, uh, deeply deprived neighborhoods. Uh, but I didn't even know they existed. That's the degree of, of um, separation, segregation. There is even in a, in a fairly liberal northern city. And we, we could think, oh, well, we're, we're in a much better place here in New Zealand. And in some ways we are, but we still are struggling with all kinds of legacies of colonization, and behind colonization is white supremacy. In other words, you have to believe that, that brown lives are lesser, are inferior, in order to take the land from the ancestral land from those people, the indigenous people. Not very long ago, a few, a few years back now, I um, learned of what happened right here across the Manukau in um, Mangere um, around the time of the um, New Zealand wars people in Auckland, Māori in Auckland, and I think elsewhere as well, were um, told that they had to declare their support for the Crown. And if they didn't, there would be consequences. And the people of, of Māngere um, were... Um, their land was confiscated. This was in 1863. And... The and the, these particular tribes had seen themselves as kind of protectors of Pākehā of Auckland. They had um, sort of held that part of, of the land and also provided um, Auckland with much food from their market gardens, their very rich um, farmland there. And... So they, they actually became internal refugees. They had to travel away from their lands, go down south into the Waikato and rely on the kindness of their, of their uh, relatives there. They were expelled from their homes and stripped of their livelihood. This just happened across the border here. And it's still felt by people. So black lives matter. Brown lives matter. And we need to say this in order to move towards a fuller realization of the statement of all lives matter, to make it real, to make it mean something. So although we, we put a lot of value and zen on silence, there are times when it is important to speak, times when it's important to um, show solidarity, say no. I'd like to um, read and comment on a, a short piece that um, from a blog by a Zen teacher whose name is James Ishmael Ford. 
Um, he's a, a, a Soto Buddhist priest, um, Zen priest, and also a retired Unitarian minister. He's written a number of books. Um, Zen Master Who about um, Zen teachers in America and and a number of other other ones. And he wrote this <coughs> um, came out a little while ago, maybe a week ago or ten days ago, when the when the, um, the protests were just starting. And um, it looks a little bit it explores a little bit this this question of. Um, uh, when and how to speak and sameness and difference which we read up in our verse he writes Zen is a spiritual perspective and a practice its primary focus is a constellation of disciplines that invite silence and so what about right now, now, in a moment like this, now in the wake of what on the face of it, on that video most of America has seen of a police officer murdering George Floyd for allegedly writing a bad check for $20? And, what that, and with that, the eruption of pent-up rage, 400 years of rage. I have to add all of it fanned for the past three years by dog whistles and sneers and legal manoeuvring to continue the marginalization of minorities right from the White House, right now, this now. Is silence enough? Historically, Buddhism, and particularly Zen, was largely apolitical. There are a number of reasons for this. One is theological, spiritual, Buddhism is a call to see our individual complicity in the suffering of the world through our thoughts and actions and the undertaking a path of non-engagement with those things that perpetuate the cycles of suffering. So the practices involve untangling our grasping consciousness that otherwise sweep us along into ever more hurt. Presence, intimacy, silence. There is something powerful in this silence. The other is practical. This is the other reason for silence. For most of its history, Zen Buddhism has been embedded in totalitarian cultures where criticism of the state can involve severe retribution and often death. Further, Buddhism has been a monastically driven religion and, frankly, the more successful the monasteries, the more entangled their communities and leaders are with whatever the status quo might be, and so from the monasteries, silent. silence. Um, what he, I think he, what he means by successful here, and I would put sort of inverted commas around it, would be large and wealthy monasteries. In fact, if you read the Zen literature, often the the um, abbots of, of monasteries will um, choose those that are, are remote and far from the centres of the power. And there are also stories of, of uh, masters who were 
um, very well supported by members of the of uh, the ruling um, classes, so to speak. But then there was a change, and um, the the their uh, patrons uh, had changes in their in their political fortunes, and the monastery would often be um, suffer the consequences of that political shift. So we, we could say that they, the ministries had to be had to be cautious. But then he adds, this looks to be a completely different silence, the silence of complicity. Buddhism has now moved into modernity. People who find the core analysis of Buddhism rich and compelling have also noticed internal contradictions. The fact that in the West and parts of East Asia we now live within oligarchic republics with various degrees of freedom of expression with that freedom are finding the very analysis of who we are as individuals can be applied to, applied to our cultures as well in other words we can take the teachings of Buddhism and apply them to institutions so we can see greed and, and hatred and ignorance as um, aspects of our own hearts and minds and we can also identify institutional greed and hatred and delusion. We can recognize the way these things become embedded in the structures that we live in. Internally, this has let us challenge structures that have allowed the ways of the wise heart to be transmitted over generations, but also has also perpetuated structures that marginalize many people and shelter abuses of all sorts. The most glaring example historically has been the way women have been treated. The insight of the great way which becomes Zen can be summarized as form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Just talking about this on Sunday. These lines are from the Heart Sutra. What that means is our liberation our healing from the great hurt is found no place other than this place. And beyond what that means for us as individuals, it can be also applied to us as communities. The lens of the core Mahayana Buddhist analysis is that nothing is substantive, that everything is in motion, mutually creating and decaying, this includes all things, including you and me. And we humans experience this play of causes and effects as imbalance, as hurt. But, and this is the great turning for us, that there is a liberating vision which heals the hurt. That's our way. That is the Zen way. And, and as I've said, we've seen this can be applied both to individuals and to cultures. Once we, we as in the community of practitioners, noticed this, doors of starting opening. The place of sex and gender followed immediately. Then questions of marginalization of minorities in the Americas, especially around race, become obvious evils. 
and with that a very quick and easy step to challenging the assumptions of how we make our livings, especially the gross inequities of under-regulated capitalism. Lots to notice. And, I hasten to add, reasonable and good-hearted people can and do disagree about the best ways forward for us. Us. I'm thinking here specifically of those who claim and are claimed by Zen Buddhism. Here are some facts on the ground. George Floyd was murdered by a police officer. We have that video. Other officers watched and did nothing. Even as witnesses called out to them that Mr. Floyd was dying. I watched the stream of urine flowing across the asphalt from under the car that partially obscured what was going on. And I knew that he was dying. If not at that moment dead. As many say, this is not something new. What is new is that there are millions of phones with built-in cameras. So, is silence enough? Silence is something powerful and true. And yes, it is always enough, in one sense at least. It is the great emptiness. And I actually have no argument with those who've turned inwards and fled to the monasteries. May they continue as blessings upon the world. But now our Zen way has come into the world, into householder life, into this messy place. We live in a world where emptiness is also form. Form our somewhat bloodless term for the world and every blessed thing in it the world where a man was murdered, the world where people have erupted in rage, a world where people do things they will regret, and the world where our voices need to be raised. Here, where we live, silence is not enough. Here, in the play of cause and effect, we need to own our place. We need to recall we are all bound up together in the great play of cause and effect and that every action or refraining from action has consequences. Here in this place where race matters, where just being black or brown puts your life at risk, this place where George Floyd is murdered, a police officer's knee on his throat, and this place where those 400 years of rage has once again erupted. We need to remember the fact that we are all of us one family, the great family of things. We need to recall the deep silence at the heart of all things and from that knowing we need to act, to resist evil actions, to call out, to reach out, to stand with those who have been murdered the oppressed, the marginalised, the poor, the wounded. With this, body, with this body, knowing of the play of life and death and the all-pervading unity at the heart of it, we need to own our responsibilities to step into the world and to stand with the oppressed, marginalised, the poor, the poor, the wounded. We need to stand with those who have been shadowed by terror for vastly too long. It's 
like to take up one of the points that um, James Ford makes here at the end. Um, We need to own our responsibilities to step into the world. It's We, we could just sit, and that could be our response to this. Um, but one of, the, one of the characteristics of racism is uh, this separation. So not only do I think, think that we need, need to speak out, just to, to, to come forth and, and and state Black Lives Matter with, with others who are stating it, but also to engage in conversations because this is one of the ways in which we will uh, break down the separation, the, 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 the ignorance that we have of, of different races. At one point during the march you know, on Sunday, we were invited to turn around and greet the people around us just to make that simple um, gesture of talking to somebody we didn't know, somebody outside of our little groups. I'd like to read some, um, to comment on some passages from um, a book called um, Mindful of Race, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. And it's by uh, Ruth King. And Ruth King is a, an international um, insight meditation teacher. And she, um, for many years, coached um, leaders in, in the workplace on um, diversity and workplace tra- trauma. And... Um, she teaches a program uh, called Mindful of Race and she's um, written um, another book besides this one called Healing Rage, Women Making Inner Peace Possible. And this um, chapter that we'll read a little bit from is called Two Realities, One Truth. Is this one? Is it two? As our verse says. She writes, A beautiful teaching often shared in Buddhist communities supports us in placing race in a social context. It's called the Two Truths Doctrine and it describes two realities in which we all live ultimate reality and relative reality. Simply stated, in relative reality, we are somebodies, formed, habituated, ego-driven, and relating to life through concepts. In ultimate reality, we are nobodies, formless, empty of self, and eternal. In relative reality, I am a woman, African-American, lesbian, great-grandmother, artist, and elder. However, in ultimate reality, I'm none of these things. I am beyond conception, 
I am awareness dancing with the karmic rhythms of life. In ultimate reality, there is no race nor a reason to suffer. We are undivided and beyond definition. But in relative reality, we're all in considerable pain as racially diverse beings driven by fear, hatred, and greed and delusion. In relative reality, language is commonly how we relate. Talking about race is messy because it brings to light our racial beliefs and values expressed in ignorance, innocence and righteousness. Many of us show up with good intentions but are bruised, braced and afraid. We put our foot in our mouth, we get scared, we become frustrated or belligerent or just shut down. We feel unclear, unskilled, angry and cautious. Our mind plays habit songs that get in the way of our ability to connect and be open to what's right here. It takes us back to our verse. The moon among the clouds is ever the same, different from each other, the mountain and the valley. How wonderful, how blessed. Is this one? Is this two? James Ford um, invited us to to um, respond, to take responsibility. And um, many of many of us, as, as Pakihas, um, may the, enjoy the, the luxury of not thinking much about race or racism. And in, in a sense, we can ha- we have that luxury because we're Pakiha, we're, we're part of the, the the dominant culture, the dominant race. Um, in this book by Ruth King, she looks into what she calls as the six hindrances to racial harmony. And she says that these, these hindrances illustrate the power dyna- dynamics of um, racial dominance by whites and um, the subordination that um, people of color feel. She says, the point, of this di- <coughs> the point of this discussion is to shed light on common habits of harm so we can interrupt our mental programming. We're not attempting to solve racial injustice or distress, but rather we are trying to understand their characteristics and see our relationship to it. And I just wanted to, to touch on these uh, six hindrances. and just relate them to our own experience. The first one she, she calls white people good individuals. And really what she's, she's um, talking about here is the way in which um, white people, um, we generally think of ourselves as being 
um, well-meaning, um, uh, likely to consider ourselves um, not to be racist, and to see things um, from a uh, kind of uh, an individual perspective. She says that people of colour usually relate strongly to their group identity because they live with the impact of racism and race um, daily. But, but white people tend to think of themselves as individuals because um, they don't have this pressure on them for, uh, as, a, as a group, as a racial group. So they don't see themselves that way. She writes, In a mindfulness of race training program following the 2016 election, several white men expressed concern that they were being treated as Trump supporters when they weren't. They didn't want what they felt was such a negative image to be protected, projected onto them just because they were white. I waited a few minutes before responding. Then I simply said, welcome to my world. This is what it's like to experience group identity. People project and then have both accurate perceptions and misperceptions. However, individual members of dominant groups really taste, rarely taste their collective identity unless required to do so. For instance, if we're put into a, into a, a situation um, where we're, we're, um, we're suddenly a minority or we're suddenly projected on, as in this case, And remember, um, years ago, coming across a book called um, Being Pākehā by, by Michael King, um, an historian. And um, it, had, it had come out of his um, difficult relationship he'd had at, at the time with some uh, Māori groups um, because of his del delving into uh, Māori history. And... Um, and it was sort of a novel concept to me, this notion of being Pākehā, that this was an identity, and that he, he writes in great um, detail about, about his sort of forging of uh, what, that, what that meant to him, to be Pākehā. You could also re relate this to how most Māori need to be bicultural if they're to survive and thrive in our society and they need to work at it but for um, Pākehā generally we can, we can uh, choose whether we, we want to explore being bicultural it's certainly not something that we um, need to have a strong sense of in order to survive that's an, what it means to be part of the dominant culture is can generate in us a kind of laziness about understanding uh, Māori tanga.
or for that matter, understanding the experience of what are now being called the third culture, which is um, now we have a whole generation coming up of um, New Zealand-born uh, people of African heritage. There's, a, there's an interesting series, of, a kind of podcast series by um, a Somali worker, I, I forget his name, um, have it here somewhere. Um, he's a, a community worker and he's made some small um, films on, on mental health um, where he looks into what's it like, what, what it was like growing up um, in New Zealand um, after having come from, from uh, Somalia. With his, with his family and um, how, how being thrown into school he, w he was um, he and the other people he talks to in one of these, these programs were regarded as very exotic and, and very other The second hindrance that, that she talks about is internalised oppression. And again, in the same series um, called The um, Third Culture to Minds, um, in, in one of these uh, little interviews, um, the filmmaker, is, his name is Guled Mia, um, he talks to several... Um, Rappers uh, who come from uh, African, have got African heritage, they're Kiwi kids, or young people, and um, two two of the three rappers describe how they um, they had so internalised um, the racism that they um, felt uh, couldn't even. One said he couldn't even take a, a compliment because he felt so badly about himself and the, and the other another rapper a girl said that she when she she realized that when she met other other girls that she would feel better about herself if they had darker skin than she had and she'd feel worse about this herself, herself if she was meeting a girl who had lighter skin than she had and that a lot of her work as a rapper has been to sort of um, shed the this sort of internalized um, oppression The third hindrance that she talks about, she calls stars and constellations. Let's read a little bit about of this one. A group of concerned citizens attended a facilitated dialogue in North Carolina to discuss the killing of 18-year-old Michael Brown, an unarmed African-American man shot at least six times by a 28-year-old white police officer, Darren Wilson, in Ferguson, Missouri, in 2014. And people will probably remember this one because um, it, it um, generated 
uh, a lot of anger and demonstrations. And this has happened again and again over the years. This was one of many such public killings over a span of months, resulting in a nationwide outcry and broad shows of resistance. After watching a video of the killing, the group, mostly comprised of whites, were asked to share how they would describe what happened and how they felt about it. Paraphrasing, a white male in our group shared, I can't believe that officer killed the boy in cold blood. I'm outraged. He was shaking and had tears in his eyes. He was describing a star of harm, an isolated incident. When my turn came, I shared, I am tired of white police officers killing unarmed African Americans. I'm outraged. I too was shaking and had tears in my eyes. I was describing colour, a constellation of harm, a pattern. In, this, in his description, the white male saw this as an unfortunate incident, a single star. Race was not a factor in view. For me, race was not only a factor, it was the Big Dipper, a repeating racial group pattern that I had been forced to acknowledge again and again. This painful dynamic, when made obvious, is why some whites will say, I'll just keep quiet and stay out of trouble because I don't know how to be politically correct. However, what is said is not as problematic as what it's rooted in and silence is not the answer, nor is it a refuge. A shift in how we perceive is required to transform habits of harm, to see not just the stars, but also the constellations. It's not just a handful of police killing black bodies that is the pattern, although we could point fingers at the individual police officers. It is the system that fails us. A few of the unarmed African Americans killed by police within the past few years include Philando Castile, Terence Crutcher, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Rekia Boyd, Sean Bell, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Danroy Henry Jr., Kendrick McDade, Ayana Jones, Ramali Graham, Amadou Diallo, Trayvon Martin, John Crawford III, Jonathan Ferrell, and Timothy Stansbury Jr. And we could, of course, now add to this list George Floyd, uh, and the, even the more recently than him, uh, Rachard Brooks. Common to all these killings is that none of the police officers was convicted. The constellation of harm here is embedded in the system that condones such behaviour as normative or what is referred to as structural racism. And so a big part of our job is to start to see these patterns and understand them as, as structural racism. And these are certainly present in our policing and justice system um, here in New Zealand. I don't think it's necessary to go into the statistics around this. Mostly people will be familiar with um, higher rates of arrest, imprisonment for Maori, um, 
not to mention all the other areas of disadvantage, the lower, worse outcomes for health, um, more babies taken from mothers. One of, one of the people who spoke at the, the Black Lives Matter, um, I think it was, it was at, at, the, at the march, or it might have been commenting on it, um, she said that they'd recently had a, a, um, a march for um, uh, in a protest against the babies being uplifted by Oranga Tamariki and much, much fewer people um, turning out against that and she was relating this to this sort of um, easier for us to be um, outraged at things that happen far away. But to start to see the patterns and to, and to work to change them as best we can. running out of time to look at these other ones we'll just um, touch on them briefly um, the next one she lists is intent and impact and she tells the story of somebody at one of her workshops who um, was, was deeply hurt by and offended by a friend of hers of 20 years who told her that she looked like Aunt Jemima. Not everybody may be familiar with Aunt Jemima. I don't think her, the products are here, but um, it's a brand of pancakes. I think they sell maple syrup as well, and it's got this picture of, of a black woman on the, on the label. And it, it, there's a whole history behind it. It goes back to the 19th century when... Um, an ex-slave was employed by this um, breakfast food company to advertise their wares and she'd wear a, like a white cotton thing around her head and an apron and um, uh, it was said to be a sales technique that, that um, drew on people's nostalgia from simpler days when they had um, black servants and before that black slaves. So there was a whole weight of history behind it um, and um, the, the white friend didn't understand why, why um, her friend was so upset and so unable to even um, really uh, talk to her about it. She writes, again, typically white people enter engagements with people of colour as well-intended individuals, unaware of, the, of themselves as a racial group with historic baggage. Instead, they see themselves as a good guy, a white ally, an exception to whiteness, and they expect to be accepted as they are. People of colour 
in an attempt to be with white people they like or must engage with will often look, overlook white ignorance expressed in innocent intent. You could say that they collude with just being individuals and avoiding discussing race. And in fact, uh, this woman who experienced this had not ever talked to her friend of 20 years about race. It's really important to have these conversations, even though they might be difficult. Um, there's the issue now about the, the um, statue of Captain Cook um, in, in Gisborne, um, and some people are saying it's just a statue, but uh, for uh, one of the uh, local iwi down there, Ngāti Onioni, um, when they see that statue, it reminds them of the, the nine ancestors who were killed when Cook landed there near Gisborne. So beginning, we have to educate ourselves to, to um, put ourselves into the shoes of others and get a sense of, of the background of, of some of these, um, these images like Aunt Jemima or the, or the, the statue of Captain Cook or the, the, the guy in um, Hamilton um, that um, is, I, I, I think I heard um, uh, talk about after many years of trying, now finally the council is thinking about uh, removing this statue. Of um, course, we need to also know about, about um, people like Hamilton, but um, the kind of public statue that, that, that literally puts people on a pedestal is not so helpful. There are, there are more here. Time's um, run out. So um, just like to end um, with the verse that we started with, with. The moon among the clouds is ever the same, different from each other, the mountain and valley. How wonderful, how blessed is this one, is this two, Moon among the clouds is ever the same. We, we, from the from the the ultimate point of view, we all have this brilliant, round, shining Buddha nature. But at the same time, we're each of us different. Races are different from each other. Cultures are different from each other. The mountain and the valley. What could be more different from a mountain than a valley? And yet they are intimately related. The mountain is the mountain because the valley is the valley. And you can't even point to where one turns into the other, really. Blackness and whiteness condition each other. We, we uh, um, as, as white people, we have privileges because of having been born into the dominant race. And it's important to educate ourselves about that, to understand it.
if we if we can do this, we're actually um, realizing our innate connectedness to recognize our our difference, to to see it, to to understand it, um, actually brings us closer together. How wonderful! How blessed! Is this one? Is this two? We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow. Dharma gaze beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passion. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.